was a bit of a lengthy psalm. It was a long scripture reading. We do those on purpose because there's power in God's word. Uh, the power in God's word is not limited to what a pastor can, can preach and proclaim, not limited in our ability to understand immediately, but rather there is power in God's word itself. As the book of Hebrews tells us, the word of God is living and active. It cuts into us to show what's right, to show what's not right, and to begin to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, I, you may have noticed we had that, uh, that video song earlier, the lyric video, I think we would call it, uh, of a band called Ghost Ship, and their song taken directly from the book of Job. I don't know if you caught that, but the similarities between that and, and Job's final cry out to God and God's answer to him at the end of the book. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Job to start off with. See, the book of Job, you've got Job. He is a good man, probably better than just about anyone around him. And he has lived a blessed life. And everyone says, well, it makes sense that Job would live a blessed life because he is a good man. Well, but the corollary to that is that when Job's life starts to go wrong and it goes terribly wrong, he loses his family. He loses his wealth, and as a result, he loses his reputation. Everyone thinks, well, I guess he wasn't that good after all. He must have been a low-down and dirty sinner. And Job says, no, that's not who I am. And he calls out to God, cries out to God throughout the book, saying, hey, God, why is this happening? What's going on? And Job has several friends who come along, and they say, no, Job, we know you're a sinner. Just admit it, and this can all be over. And Job says, no, I'm, I'm not. I've lived a good life. I honor God. I, when I do things that are wrong, I, I sacrifice. I make it right with God. And finally, Job cries out, God, you have to answer me. And that's when God says this strange sort of stuff to him, doesn't he? He doesn't say, hey, Job, this is why all of these things have happened. Let me lay it out for you. If you read the book of Job, you actually, you get the background story. You see that God is proving Job through what happens. But God never tells that to Job. Do you remember how he responds? Let me summarize it for you. Summarize the whole song. Summarize the several chapters. Because God doesn't give him a little thing like, here's a pithy sentence to correct you. He says, I am, you know, gird yourself like a man because you're about to get it. Where were you? Where were you when I made the earth? Does, I, I love my favorite line out of that song and out of that, that whole passage. It's where he says, does the lightning ask you where it should strike? No. And Job's response, because he is a good man at the end, is, I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me. Job says, God, you're right. You are that God. The world, the creation answers to you in a unique way because of who you are. But I think we're still left a bit unsatisfied, aren't you? I know a number of, we had a Bible study in our church who, who studied the book of Job. And they, I know several people in that study were unsatisfied. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem good enough. God seems mean that he would let all of these things happen to Job. And I think we start to ask this question, what is the use of God's goodness in our lives? Because sometimes it feels like God may be good, but it, it sure doesn't feel like it. 
God may be good, but my life still feels like a mess. God may be good, but I'm not very happy. What is the use of God's goodness in our lives? Well, I think that's the question that this psalm seeks to answer for us. Psalm 118. And I think the first answer that it gives is, frankly, God is our best hope. God is our best hope. Verses 8 to 9 in Psalm 118 say, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in human beings. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let me ask you, when you're in trouble, where do you go? Maybe you start with your friends, right? Hey, friends, I'm in trouble. You know, I, I feel sad. I feel upset. I've got this, this bill coming up that I can't pay. I've got uh, this frustration. I've got this hurt. I've got whatever it is. I'm in trouble, and I need your help. And friends are good, aren't they? Friends can give us some good help. God has given us friends. God said things to us like it is not good for the man to be alone. You remember, that's about the first thing God said to human beings in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. It's not good for the man to be alone, and he makes a woman for him. Notice that that I don't think there's precedence in creation. Like, well, the man came first, so clearly he's better. No, no, no. The man came first. God said, that's not good enough, and he made the woman. Happy Mother's Day. Maybe you go to your friends, but our friends can't bail us out of all of our trouble, can they? So where else do we go? Well, maybe we go to princes, don't we? Say, well, you know, this is a bad law. And we need to get it changed. Or, you know, here's, here is a, a hole in the social safety net, and, and we need to fix that hole. We go and we say, we, we need our, our princes. We need the powerful to bail us out. But the psalm reminds us that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You know, I think democracy is great. I like Winston Churchill. You, you know, I've said this a million times here, so I'm sorry. But Winston Churchill said about democracy that it's the very worst form of government except for all the others. But, you know, the problem with democracy is that major, the majority can still be wrong, right? And that's how democracy works. You say, well, what does everyone think we should do? Well, 60% of the people think we should do this. And so we go out and, you know, we do what 60% of the people want. And, and, and that seems, maybe it seems pretty good. But what about the 40%? Right? Do you notice that democracy at its worst can leave 49.9% of the people unsatisfied? Our princes let us down one way or another. Not because... God hasn't given them to us as a gift because they were never intended to make right all that's gone wrong with our world. And we need to guard ourselves against starting to believe that you know, those are the people who can take care of us and who can fix us and we can solve all the world's problems just if, if we had the right president or the right legislature or the right courts. Those are less important than our God. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Why? Why? Well, maybe actually first, how? Because I think how begins to answer why. First of all, I think it's because we have experienced, at least in a limited way, God's goodness in our own lives. Is there anyone here who has experienced, at least in a limited way, God's goodness in their life? Yeah. 
We can all raise our hands. Because even if we can't think of lots of specific instances, like here's this mirror, I, was, I had cancer, I was dying, and you know, I woke up the next morning, and there was no cancer because God healed. Even if you don't have that story, have, has the rain fallen on you and filled up the lakes and the rivers and the reservoirs? Has the sun shone on you and caused, uh, caused the th- everything to grow? Have you eaten food? Have you breathed the air? We, we read this psalm together a few months ago, uh, or a few weeks ago, I, I think, is it Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Romans uh, chapter 1 talks about, hey, ever since the beginning of the world, God's invisible qualities have been present. His eternal power and his divine nature so that man is without excuse. Every good that we have in our life, James chapter 1, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. That last bit's not just in, here's an extra tidbit about God. It's actually the God who gives good gifts never changes, which means he will always give good gifts. We need to put our trust in the Lord, not other human beings, because it's better to put our trust in God than any human being Because we have experienced God's goodness and we know something about who God is. And we need to hold on to the good things that God does in our lives. We need to look for them and seek them and remember them and proclaim them. Because if we do this, we will be prepared for the trouble that comes in the future. In the prophet Micah, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Do you feel like there's a story behind that passage? Because I do. Micah's not just going like, I sure hope this is true. I sure hope it's going to work out. Micah's saying, I know this because I've experienced this. Though I have fallen, I will rise because that's who God is. And if we do this, if we keep remembering, here's what God has done for me, we'll have a compelling story to tell the world. Is anyone here really comfortable going up to other people and telling them about Jesus? You need to know Jesus. You need to to follow him with all of your life. He will save you from your sin. Or do you feel weird about that? You know, I think we overthink this. Would you just tell the people around you about the good news of what God has done for you? That's one of our most famous hymns, right? Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now am found. That's all John Newton was doing. Here's the story of God's goodness in my life. Tell the story. Remember the story. And if we do that, we will find reasons to trust in the Lord. We'll become convinced that it's better to trust in him than in other human beings. This week, in your prayer life, go before God and say, would you show me this week the good things that you have done for me and the people that I love that I have failed to see? Pray that and see what God does. 
But there's something else. We trust in the Lord, not other human beings, not just because of what he's done in our past, but also because we know who God is. We know something about his nature. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You remember that? We gave it a, a children's title, I think, in the fiery furnace. But it's a good story for grown-ups, too. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a giant idol, and he says, everyone will bow down and worship, and three Jews refuse to do so, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, worship or die. And they, this is how they respond. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. See, it's about God's nature, isn't it? He is able. He tells the lightning where to strike. He doesn't have any problem with your furnace, O king. I love how they continue, though. But even if he does not deliver us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Here's the realist's take on the situation, isn't it? God is able, but that doesn't mean he always does in the ways we expect. Otherwise, people would be living to be 2,000 years old. We could talk to all of the apostles today, right? Because God is able to extend their lives forever. He's able to do that. That doesn't mean he will every time. He has a bigger plan than that. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know about God's nature. He is able to do it. And even if he doesn't, it doesn't mean he's not able. It doesn't mean he's not good. See, God's goodness is useful in our lives because of God's strength. His goodness is able everywhere, at every time, to overcome evil. But... The next thing I want to tell you, I just skipped a whole page to many people's relief, is that God chooses surprising heroes. If we want to know about whether or not God's goodness is valuable in our life, we need to remember that God is better. God's help is better than human help. And we also need to remember that God chooses surprising heroes. If the first thing we take from this psalm is that God's goodness matters to us because he will eventually make it right, we also need to remember that he will, at the right time, cut down the evildoer. And it's going to be strange when he does. First of all, the heroes God chooses are not the powerful and the popular, but the righteous. In verse 15 of Psalm 118, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Do you notice that it doesn't say uh, shouts of joy and victory resound everywhere? There are only certain people who are able to recognize that this is God who's done it and it was good. Only certain people can recognize that. But again, it isn't because the righteous are the most likely. Like, hey, those, those people are righteous. They're really good. They've got it sorted out. They've got it figured out. Because, first of all, the righteous are the people who are being made righteous, aren't they? 
That's you know, the, the Bible, the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament are addressed almost without exception to the saints. And by that, they don't mean by you know, the people the Catholic Church has canonized over the years. See, the Bible's conception of a saint, I know we like to say sometimes, oh, we're not saints, right? And by that we mean we're still people who are looking to grow and to become more like Jesus. We don't always get it right. That's a good, true thing that we need to say. But when the letter, when the apostles are writing to the church, they say without distinction to the saints in Christ Jesus, in Corinth and in Philippi and in all of these other places. And if you've ever read the letter to the Corinthians, the two letters to the Corinthians, because they needed a lot of help. They're also the longest letters to anybody. Paul still calls them saints, even though they're doing things like incest, even though they're worshiping the wrong gods, even though they're confused about whether or not they can eat food sacrificed to idols, even though the rich keep coming with lots of food to the church dinner, and the poor are going hungry, even though they are a messed up church. The Bible tells us that they are saints. Because it's not about primarily what you and I do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. We carry not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He died in our place so that we may live, and he gave us his righteousness so that we won't live as pitiful, broken people forever. See, it isn't because the righteous are the likely ones. Because the righteous aren't actually righteous on their own. I'll give you an example. When the Roman Empire became Christian in the 4th century, Christians comprised only about 10% of the empire's population. It wasn't a majority movement. Yet Constantine became emperor and used his power to Christianize the empire. But it wasn't, it wasn't political power that kept the empire Christian. You might say, well, of course, Constantine could do that. He's the emperor of the world, basically. No. But you see, what happens is Constantine has a son, Constantius, who becomes emperor after him, well, after killing all of his brothers and sisters. Sounds like a really Christian empire, doesn't it? And then Constantius raises Julian, Constantine's nephew. He says, you will be the next Caesar. That didn't go very well either. Uh, they ended up in civil war, as a matter of fact, and it only ended because Constantius died. But Julian, uh, the nephew of Constantine, becomes Caesar. And when he becomes the sole Augustus of the empire, he did everything he could to suppress Christianity and bring back Roman paganism. And that's why we call him today Julian the Apostate. Despite all of his power, though, Julian wasn't able to suppress the Christians. It wasn't because of political power, but because of the power of righteous Christians, righteous in Jesus Christ, who loved and cared for the poor. That's what defeated Julian. As a matter of fact, Julian knew that. He recognized that the, the true power of Christianity among the people, even if he wouldn't grant the Holy Spirit, maybe, as we would, but he saw they go out and they are characterized by love and concern and compassion. And so Julian tried to reshape paganism, which had never been about those things. But he found out that without the Holy Spirit, it was impossible. See, the true heroes were not the political figures, not the generals, not the powerful. It was the humble. It was the people running the food pantry. 
It was the people who stayed behind in the cities when plague came. That was the most powerful influence of Christianity, all made possible by the Holy Spirit dwelling in the lives of Christians. And now we get into the messianic sections of this psalm. Did you catch that when I read it the first time? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. That's verses 22 and 24 from Psalm 118, and it's also quoted in the Gospels concerning Jesus Christ. The stone the builders rejected. That's the one God built on. See, I think it's easy to, for us to lose the sense of strangeness, strangeness that must attend Christianity, that must attend our faith and our life. We try and blend in, don't we? Because it's uncomfortable to stick out. But God didn't intend for us to blend in. He intended for us to be weird. We see the cross and we immediately think of forgiveness and love and life. But if you're familiar with the cross in the first century, you would have never associated it with those things. The cross in the first century meant humiliation and shame and death. It meant loss, not victory. It's the modern-day equivalent of putting an electric chair on our steeple or a gas chamber or putting a syringe with poison on it at the front of our church. And the fact that we can regard it in any other way is proof of the power of Jesus Christ, the power of his death on the cross. God makes it weird. And you know what that means. You and I, we're the unlikely heroes. We aren't powerful as the world counts power. We aren't wise as the world counts wisdom. But we are nonetheless the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Because see, if God went out and said, I want to find all of the smartest, wealthiest, most powerful, most together people and make them my people, then we would never really be sure if we'd done it or if God had done it. And so God instead says, I want everyone to know where the real power lies. I want everyone to know who's really good. And so I'm going to find the people that are unlikely and that no one would expect, and I'm going to use them. Now, sometimes we're unlikely and the people that no one would expect because we're just not very capable on our own. But other times it's because the world says, well, we don't like you and we don't care about you and we think you're ridiculous and silly and dangerous even. But there's hope in either thing. When the world outside the church starts to say, you guys are bad news, well, the first thing we do is we go back to the Word of God and we say, we're not being bad news, are we? Because sometimes the world really has a, a point, doesn't it? Uh, when Nazism rose in Germany, you know, a lot of the Christians went along. Whether they were Christians in their hearts or not, I, I suppose I don't know. But a lot of the Christians couldn't recognize that this is evil and this is wrong. 
And you need to go back to the Word to be reminded. We can make mistakes. But other times we go back to the Word and we find out, no, this is who God intended for us to be. And it makes sense. It makes sense that the world doesn't love to hear it because we tell it its deeds are evil. So Jesus told the disciples. Brothers and sisters, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous to those who can see. So if we say, well, what is the good of God's goodness in our lives today? We remember, well, God's the one who's actually strong to rescue. It's not in the people. It's not in the princes. It's in the Lord. We remember as well that God chooses the weird, the unlikely, to accomplish his purposes so that everyone will know that God did it. This is God's work. And finally, the way we need to respond to this is simply in praise, because that's ultimately what this psalm is. It's a declaration of praise. God has saved. God is good. And now I will return thanks and worship to him. God's goodness makes the terrible cross wonderful, makes the powerless mighty, sets the world back to rights, and what remains is our praise.